Amen. You may be seated. And uh, we have just sung some really important truths. And the theme of the day is to remember those truths and to not forget them. So this morning, before we begin in our study of First Samuel chapter 7, I'd like us to just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are gathered here because you are our creator. And you made us in the image people with thought and being, people with understanding, hearts, minds, intellect, the capacity to create. Lord, we are a shadow of who you are. And we praise your name. We thank you for not only creating us and this world in which we live, but also in giving us a sin substitute in Jesus, a Savior who humbled himself and took on the form of a man and became like us and followed the plan that you had set for him all the way to a cross and a death in which he took upon himself our sin. We just praise the name of Jesus, that Christ is our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit, a real comforter and counselor to us, one who takes your word and illuminates it and gives us understanding, who brings about conviction, who not only just of sin that we have done wrong, but also the conviction to do what is right and the power to serve you. The three in one, the mighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and we thank you for your work in this world to bring about a people who will be called by your name. We confess, Lord, that we can do nothing without you. We are absolutely, utterly dependent on you because we are sinners by birth and by choice. And we are frail in our own strength. You have ordered our days so that maybe there's three score and ten, maybe there's more, but we all have an expiration date. You have built us in such a way that every day we need rest. You have given us a gift of rest, not only spiritually in our toil with our Savior, but even with a time to gather and come before you and with your people to be under the word and be nourished by it and be cared for by your spirit. We confess, Lord, that this week we probably have failed you in a multitude of ways. Perhaps even now you're bringing things to our minds of things we said or did or things we should have said or done. We thank you, Lord, that you know our hearts We confess to you our enduring need of your salvation and the righteousness of Jesus. And we know that you have forgiven us in Christ. For if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we are able to offer you not only a word of praise and a word of confession, but also thanksgiving. For your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You have given us Christ and the Spirit. You have brought about a miraculous salvation for people who were far from you. You have drawn us near to you. You have demonstrated your unfailing love and your grace time and time again. Now, Lord, we 
We lift up needs that we have. And we pray, Lord, for uh, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Rapid City, Nate Sales, and his family. His son, Macario, was in a serious accident this weekend. He's in Denver. They're trying to bring healing to his body through surgeries. We pray, Lord, that you would heal that young man. We pray for those within our church that have health needs. I think of the Smith family this morning, Lord. We think of those who are struggling against cancer, MS, autoimmune diseases, heart issues. Lord, we pray that you would bring grace and peace to the hearts of your people. Those who are struggling with pain, even if that pain can't be lifted, Lord, that you would remind them of your promise to be with them and to be near them. May we as brothers and sisters be quick to encourage those among us We pray for those who are estranged, who have estranged or wayward children. And we join with our brothers and sisters, and we ask, Lord, that you would turn the hearts of the children back to the the Creator. That you would comfort the parents as they wait and pray with perseverance. We pray for those who are running from you, Lord, that you would, maybe we are here this morning and, and there is a sin that we are just not willing to lay down. We pray that you would deliver us from that and turn our hearts back to you. We pray for the salvation of our children and grandchildren, of our neighbors and friends. Use us, Lord, to speak truth in love. Make your word fertile in their hearts and bring about real conversion and repentance. We pray for those who put themselves at risk every day, the law enforcement and those that serve in fire protection, doctors and nurses, our military. We pray that you would protect them, Lord. We thank you for their willingness to stand in the gap for us. We pray for the gospel work going on in the restricted countries in Asia. Even now, Lord, we know that there are teams that are there. We know that there is work that is going on. We know churches are struggling. They're fearful of oppressive governments and regimes. But we pray, Lord, that you would save the lost through the proclamation of your word, that you would raise up leaders, that you would strengthen churches. And we thank you, Lord, that you hear these requests. And as we pray with you, that you affirm them. And we ask your blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. How do you remember something? I mean, have you really thought about the process of remembering something? Or to ask it a different way, what's the best way to forget something? I remember reading a definition of forgiveness, and it was like this. Forgiveness is a promise that you will not bring up the offense of that person to them again, You won't talk to others about it, and you won't dwell on it yourself. And what inevitably happens if we practice that kind of mental work of we don't bring something up, we don't talk to this person about it or this person about it, we don't even, when it comes to our minds, we put it out of our minds, we don't intentionally think about it. Over time, what happens is we forget. How do we remember something, though? We have to, like, reverse all that, right? We have to think about it. We have to talk about it. We have to tell others about it. 
What we see in our passage this morning, and what I hope that I can convey to you as you have read this and wrestled with it and rejoiced over it, is this simple thought. We, as Christians, need to always remember and to never forget that God saves repentant sinners. This is a glorious and good truth. If we could have preached all of chapter 4, 5, and 6, and 7 in one message, this would have been the crescendo at the end. This would have been the the triumph of grace as God led his people to repentance, as they humbled themselves and returned to him, and then he blesses by protecting them against their enemy. We have seen so many bad things in the last few weeks in these chapters, 4, 5, and 6. And now we see that, in fact, God's discipline had brought about a godly repentance. His people are ready for him. They have prepared their hearts. So this morning, as we labor to remember that God saves repentant sinners. Let me show you two things that we can do that we ought to remember. First is that repentance is the first step toward revival. And second, that we need to remind ourselves regularly that God saves sinners. So we look at verses 3 through 11. We're here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to pick up at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people put away the bowels, and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. We see here that repentance is the first step toward revival. Now, chapter 4 through 6, as I said, they demonstrate that Israel had sinned and that God's judgment was well-deserved. But for the first time since the beginning of chapter 4, 
we find that Samuel is mentioned. And with him, it's almost like the dawn comes. There's a ray of hope that comes to the people. He calls for national repentance and mourning. Apparently, as we are told later in verse 16, Samuel made a circuit where he, as a judge, would travel to various points of the country and he would meet with people and he would decide civil cases and criminal cases. He would open the law to them and teach the people and he made this circuit every year, we're told in verse 16. And apparently, as he traveled, he started noticing something. Because if we go back to verse 2, we're told that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim because where it had formerly been, Shiloh, was destroyed. A long time passed, some 20 years. But notice, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So as Samuel is traveling, he is starting to pick up on something. God is on the move. He's working in the hearts of his people. They're actually hungering after God. They're actually sorrowful over their disobedience. There seems to be something going on here. He recognizes and he calls them in verse 3 to serve God alone. And notice the recipe that he provides. Forsake every idol. Direct your heart to the Lord. Serve Him only. You see that? You guys have been doing the wrong things. You've been pursuing false gods. You have given your hearts completely to them and you are suffering because of it. It's not trade one God for the other. This is to be a reminder to them that the covenant God made with Israel in the wilderness was a promise that as long as they obeyed and worshipped him with their true heart, he would keep his promise to bless, protect, make them fruitful, and nourish them in the land. But as soon as they rejected him and turned after false idols, God said, I will give you over to these nations. I will let you reap the whirlwind as it goes as a result of your sin. And Samuel also says that when their hearts are right with God, he will deliver them from their enemies. And Israel's situation is one of their own making. They forsook the law. They lived as though they had no understanding of what it was like to rightly relate to this God of creation. The result of their covenant breaking was a culture of sin and a daily reality of being oppressed by their enemies. Now, what we see here is their their signs are there, right? They're lamenting, their sorrow, their sadness. And when we know, as we have learned as parents and as we no doubt have demonstrated ourselves, outward signs often do accompany repentance. But repentance is much more than just saying you're sorry, right? Repentance is much more than just shedding a tear over your sin. Repentance is much more than just, man, I don't like where I am, as we were led to hear these words from Psalm 107. I don't like the consequences of my sin. I wish they were different. I feel bad over this. I want to be free from it. And Samuel understood that, which is why he called all Israel to take steps that would require more than just an emotional response. So you notice in verse 3, Samuel says, you have a responsibility now 
to show that you really are seeking the Lord. And if your hearts are really returning to the Lord, then with your whole heart, you need to put away these foreign gods. I want you to move past just the emotions, and I want you to do things that are in keeping with repentance. He called Israel to change their loyalties. You see, the Canaanite religions around them had both male and female gods, and these deities were responsible in their pantheon of religion for the fertility of crops, the fertility of livestock, and the fertility of families. You had to offer sacrifices to these gods of fertility in order to have their blessing. And the worship of these deities required sexual rituals. And I don't mean this out of crassness, but quite literally, when they came to worship at the temple of these idols, it was also a brothel. Male and female cult prostitutes. Your act of worship to these pagan deities was gross sexual immorality. This is why it was so offensive to God. It also helps explain how the culture had so saturated the people of God that Hophni and Phinehas, you remember this from chapter 3? They were doing the very same things at the Ark of Covenant, at the tabernacle. They were sleeping with women as they came to worship God. They had adopted the culture of their community around them. It also helps us understand just how difficult this would be to pry the Israelites away from these gods that appeal to their base desires. If this is the way God wants us to worship, man, let's just do it. But now you're saying we need to stop doing this and this feels so good. This is so enjoyable. Who wouldn't want to worship a God like this? And so Israel is really has to make some hard choices here in turning away from this. And the truth of the matter is they can't change. Only God can change them. So Samuel called all Israel to change their behavior and worship God only. Return to the covenant that they had abandoned. You look at verse 4 and we see that the nation listened. God had prepared the hearts of the nation through adversity, through pain and suffering, so that they were ready then to hear from God. And God, in his grace, provided a man to proclaim truth to them, calling them to repentance. This story of the gospel is as old as time itself. Every time we turn from God, we, like Adam, go our own way, and the penalty of our sin will ultimately be death. And yet God in his grace keeps confronting us with people. Maybe you're here this morning and you came at the invitation of a friend or you just showed up not knowing what South Canyon was about. And God is speaking to you today through his word. I don't stand in the place of Samuel. I'm here as a repeater of truth, not a revealer of it. God is giving you his truth so that you might know him and the power that he has to change you and to heal you. Listen. Put away the life that you've chosen and serve the Lord only. Now, no doubt this took time. It took time for Samuel to travel 
and call people to repentance. It took even more time to determine whether or not their actions were really motivated in a moment of emotion or if they were really the heart change that was necessary. But after observing Israel practically working out their faith, we see this time gap that must have occurred between verse 4 and verse 5. Because now Samuel in verse 5 says, Okay, you guys, you've been living this way for a time now. I've seen the fruit. I've seen the repentance. Now here's what I want to do. I want to call you all to the village of Mizpah. We're going to have a day of national prayer. And the nation gathered and met him there. Notice, I want you to pay attention to this, verse 6. Samuel is not the actor in verse 6. It is the people. Notice, so they gathered at Mizpah. And we could even continue that. And they drew water. And they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day. And they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Israel was involved in their pursuit of God. It wasn't some mystical feeling. It wasn't an emotion that hit them. It wasn't the brevity of a moment. It wasn't the high of a special service. They made choices to order their lives around his word. And then they acted with hearts of true worship. They gathered together with God's people. They gathered together and poured out water. This drawing water and pouring out, it's symbolic of Israel being cleansed of their sin. They did this. There wasn't a priest that was sprinkling them and marking them as forgiven. They were the ones who were engaging in worship. They had been defiled by their sin. And after repenting and seeking the Lord alone, they were in need of ceremonial cleansing. In the New Testament, Jesus cleanses people at the deepest level of their sin. Matthew 9.2, he pronounces the forgiveness of sins. The writer of the book of Hebrews states it this way, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There is no sacrifice we can do that is going to merit God's favor. Jesus is God's sacrifice, a sinless holy one, a perfect one, who can bring about the real cleansing of sin and the permanent cleansing of sin. Notice not only did they ceremonially cleanse themselves of their sins, but they fasted. This is key to repentance. This awareness of sin led to an earnest pursuit of cleansing. And then they dressed in sackcloth. They sit with ashes on their head. They forego the satisfaction of food. These humble actions were signs of agreeing with the accuser. You're right, God. We have sinned against you. You're right, God. We deserve to be punished. You're right, God, that you are merciful, and it is to you we come for forgiveness. And then we are told they also confess their sins. Now, here's the truth. Human repentance is frequent, and it's imperfect. Parenting teaches us that, right? I mean, you don't even have to be a parent to know that. You're sorry for it this time. Eh, I kind of deserved it that time. I kind of had the right. I've been good this week. It's kind of like, you know, eating that chocolate cupcake. It's like, I deserve it now. And so that's the way we approach our sin. We, we've been abstaining for a while, but now we have, the, we have the right to take it for ourselves. 
The New Testament images of human repentance underscore the action of not just changing your mind or feeling sorrowful over your actions, but actually changing and going in a different direction. The writers of Acts and the epistles, they call for and describe genuine genuine repentance. A changed action is the most tangible demonstration of repentance. You can harden your face against God, and what does that show? You discipline your children, you correct them, you're confronted by your sin by your spouse, and you get angry and you blow up. What does that show about your heart? Repentance? No. I'm indifferent. I am not going to repent over this. Repentance requires large strides in a new direction. And in fact, they demonstrate to us that true repentance has occurred. Words aren't enough. We're also told that at this time Samuel judged the people, which reminds us of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Samuel isn't just there to tell them how bad they are. He's also there to coach them and teach them what is the way in which they should walk. So we see this recipe for revival that's outlined. It's forsake every idol. It's direct your heart to the Lord. It's to serve Him only. It's to cleanse yourself from every sin. It's to fast as a sign of your mourning. Confess your sin and pray. It's no secret. The Christian life is no secret. It is simple. It is trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and lean not on your own idols. Don't trust in anything but God. And what we see taking place in verses 3 through 6 is that genuine repentance is preparing God's people for God's mercy. Look now, verses 7, 8, and 9. The Philistines gather against Israel. How will Israel respond? Will they go back to their pattern, their mode of operation up to this point in 1 Samuel? Will they say, let's grab the ark? It didn't help us last time, but maybe it will this time. we got better priests. Will they say, no, we're just going to go out there and we're going to attack them with our own strategy? Or, no, what we see here is whether the Philistines interpreted Israel's actions as a declaration of war. They're all, the whole nation's gathering in this one place. Our slaves are not supposed to do that. So they're preparing to fight against us. Or whether the Philistines thought, ah, this is an ideal time. We can finally get rid of these thorns in our sides. One fell swoop, we can wipe the whole lot out and we won't have to deal with them again. And this is a warning for us. There is a reality that when you pursue Christ and you start practicing your faith, you're likely going to face challenges and tests from those who misinterpret our faith as something evil. They will see you following Christ and what is good they will call evil. And they will not like the truth of the gospel. I mean, our culture as a whole, unbelievers, they don't get what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When that happens, don't forsake the Lord. Entrust yourself to his mercy and care. 
And you look at verse 7, the end of it, the Philistines are coming and Israel is terrified. I mean, we know that God delivered the people. It was just 20 years before that, that Israel was defeated, devastating. 34,000 men in two battles over a short period of time were lost in the war against the Philistines. These were real enemies. This was a real physical threat, and it was a present danger. And they feared these men as they came. They also understood that God had used the Philistines as an instrument of judgment. And so their question is, is this yet another time in which God is going to hand us over to our enemies? Let's not disparage the Israelites for being afraid of the Philistines. They had real reason to be. But this time, notice what happens in verse 8. Israel doesn't blindly pursue their own strategy. They put their trust in the Lord, and they say, Samuel, we're going out to battle, and while we're going, you pray for us, and you ask God if he would be merciful and deliver us. What, what had changed with these people? We see that real repentance had taken place. They had returned to the Lord. They had relearned to make him their rock and deliverer, the God in whom they will trust. So God's discipline had led to Israel's repentance. And never again do we read of them using the ark as a talisman, a charm. God had brought them back to a place where they are able to demonstrate trust in him alone. And as Samuel is offering the sacrifice and praying to God on their behalf, verse 9, we are told that God answered him. Now let me ask you this. Let's take a little break from the text. When was the last time God put you in a situation where all you had was Christ? I mean, it's hard. Let's be honest. We don't like pain. We don't like loss. We don't like uncertainty. And yet God has a way of using insurmountable circumstances in our lives to teach us something about who he is. That he's trustworthy. That he loves his people. That he will meet them in their weakness and he will graciously help them. So whatever your circumstance may be that you're dealing with, If God's got you there, I know you are squirming under the microscope. I know you want to run and you want to get free of it and be rid of it. But let me encourage you, turn to Jesus. This is a real moment of faith for you. This is God's divine appointment in your life to teach you who he is. This is a moment we all need Your desperation can only be addressed by God. And notice, we are told that Samuel was sacrificing when God answered. Samuel is acting as Israel's intercessor, not Israel's savior. He's not out in front leading the charge. He's behind the battle lines. He's doing what he ought to do, and he's doing what he was asked to do. He is praying. He is an intercessor. And let me just tell you that as good as Samuel was, we have a much greater intercessor, a more faithful high priest in Jesus. 
We're told over and over again that we ought to pray. It is right for us to pray. But we can rejoice in knowing that we can rely on the prayers of one who, when he prays for us, his prayers are always answered. Jesus is interceding for his people right now. And we see in verses 10 and 11 that God fights for Israel. He gives them the victory. There's a clear connection between grace and repentance. Grace in that God gave his word to his people. Grace in that God revealed his character to his people. Grace in that God was patient with his people and didn't wipe them completely out. Grace in that God raised up faithful preachers and prophets like Samuel so that he could call people to repentance. Grace in reminding people of the consequences that were outlined in the covenant. Grace upon grace are pouring down on God's people. And it leads to repentance. Is it really any surprise to see that God provided for the people who cried out to him and had trusted him with their whole heart? God's, he is not like anybody else you've ever met. He doesn't play games with you. He doesn't try to manipulate you. He lays it all out, cut and dry, black and white, truth and what the consequences are for denying his truth. And God, when people trust him wholly, he never, ever lets them down. God's faithfulness is never in doubt. Ours is another thing. And this is account that we hear and read in these verses is just like what happened back in Joshua chapter 10 on this very same hill in this very same valley. The League of Nations came out against Joshua and Israel. And just like Samuel, Joshua prayed And just in both occurrences, God thundered mightily from heaven. In Joshua's account, he threw down hailstones, and more of the enemy died from the hailstones than the actual conflict with the soldiers of Israel. But here it is Israel that God gives the victory. He throws the Philistines into panic. They run for cover. This thunderstorm was more than just a passing shower. It was loud. It scared them. They fled. And Israel pursued. God gave a complete and absolute victory. And let me just say this. As we get near to the end of our first point, this is the longest one, I will tell you. That prayer is a real demonstration of our inadequacies and God's supremacy. You see, God answers the prayer of the humble and the contrite heart. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll leave them high and dry. I'll say, you know, one time you're doing this to me, but how many times have you turned from me? I'll argue with them. I'll put them off. No, it says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The secret to being forgiven is to do this. It is to turn away from the false things that are leading you astray. It is to seek the Lord with your whole heart. It is to cry out for forgiveness. It is to trust in Jesus as your peace with God. James 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, James goes on to say. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, on the first and third Sundays of the month, we as a church gather on Sunday night to pray. And in that time, we ask God to save souls through the preaching of his word and the witness of his people. We ask God to produce spiritual fruit in the families of South Canyon, in the ministries of South Canyon, and the gospel partners we support. We pray that God would provide the resources we need to sustain and grow this church. We need people, we need offerings, we need tithes. and We pray for one another. We ask that God would heal the sick, that he would strengthen the weary, that he would give peace to the troubled. And all this is done by a small group of people who are humbly confessing, God is our sufficiency, nothing else. As we look at verses 12 through 17, we see a quiet word. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin, called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Then we were given a summary, verses 13 through 17. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. What we see in these verses is a call to remember. Yeah, we're given a lot of details. The victory was absolute, verses 10 and 11. The, it, it spread more from the battlefield into the cities that were lost, were recovered. They pushed back Philistines all the days of Samuel. The Philistines never had dominion over Israel again. Even the others that lived in the land, the Amorites, saw what God was doing and made peace treaties with the Israelites. We see a time of flourishing for the nation. We see a time of military strength. God delivered his people from their enemies. And then we see the faithfulness of the prophet. As all his life he made this circuit and he would preach and teach. He would go and serve. The people were cared for and shepherded well. But we need to look at verse 12. The stone of Ebenezer. We need to rehearse and remember God's past acts of deliverance. Samuel's words, till now the Lord has helped, are more than a backward glance. They're not just like, oh, up till this day, mark this down. Someone got a little chisel and a hammer. Let's inscribe on this day, year, day of the month, day of the week, and the we will always know that up until Israel's history, from the time of Abraham till this day, God delivered. The language says so much more than that. The language of the Hebrew is that 
just as God has delivered in the past, that same God will continue to deliver. He's unchangeable yesterday and today and forever. He's always the same. God will continue to be what he has always been. And so Samuel is doing much more than just saying, hey, here's a monument to a battlefield that was fought here. He's giving a visible representation to the people to remind them how much God loves them. In seminary, I remember uh, a, a guy who was teaching a class that Natalie and I were in, and he shared a story. Um, he had built a case in his house, and there was a lug nut on there, on a shelf. And he's like, the reason that that lug nut is there is because we were on a long road trip with all their kids, and they had a, a lot of kids. Um, not quite the carry level, but close. Okay, there was, I think, six or seven of them. And they uh, happened to stop at some point in time, and as he was getting gas, he looked down, and there was one lug nut on that wheel. All the rest had spun off. And so what he did was he took that lug nut and he put it up on that shelf so that his kids would ask him, why is that there, Dad? And he could tell them God kept them safe. He could recount that story to them. I think we would do well to create some trophy case of God's grace in our family memory. We used to keep little notes of God's provision in seminary when you were living hand to mouth, of God's grace and answering prayers as we prayed for the salvation of these people or the safety and deliverance of these babies and on and on. It would be really a good idea if we did what that old song said, count your blessings, name them one by one. Remember the great things that God has done. We need to remind ourselves that God has not only been with us in the past, but that he will always be. God's victory over, Israel, over the Philistines is absolute. There's the story of a lifetime of service of Samuel to the Lord and his people. And as we come to the end of this chapter, it's almost as if we are being prepared for, and they lived happily ever after, right? Like, for the first time in Samuel, there's good news. God's people are doing what they ought to be doing, what they had promised that they would do. Love the Lord their God with all their heart. And then God is delivering them from a real enemy. He's absolving them and washing them and cleansing them of their sins. Their joy is in their Savior, not in their stuff. And there's memorials being built to remind them of God's great power and deliverance. And you've got to wonder, why would anyone ever doubt God? Well, the reality of it is that Israel is just like us, or we are just like Israel. We struggle to consistently follow the Lord. We have need of going the wrong way and hitting that wall before we will open our eyes and our hearts to come back to the Lord and see that He is true and faithful, that He alone can meet our needs, that He alone can satisfy Israel's sin had deafened them to God's word until God stopped speaking to them. That were the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. Their sin had led not only to physical consequences, painful ones, but even greater spiritual consequences. 
And yet in his mercy, God raised up Samuel. He gave Samuel his divine word in order that Israel would return to God. Let me just tell you that Jesus is an even greater prophet than Samuel. Jesus is the true Israel. And through the preaching of the gospel, we can be rescued from our sin and from death. Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That calling is not just Jesus' help. It's the calling that's represented by Israel's actions here in this passage. It's an understanding that to call upon Jesus is to automatically exclude all other affections, all other earthly attachments. It is to give your heart to the Lord and the Lord alone. It is to confess your sin against this holy God. It is to plead for His mercy as demonstrated through His promise to forgive those whom he washes in the blood of Christ. This is the way of the Christian. Paul says, how then will they call on him whom they've not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then Paul turns from this responsibility that we have to be proclaimers of the gospel so that people can hear and make an informed decision. Will you swear allegiance to Jesus or will you continue your way? Paul says, but here's the reality. Not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? What was it in these people that made them so stubborn that they could see the Red Sea parted? They could see manna coming down until they went into the promised land. That their clothes did not wear out over 40 years of wearing them. Some of us change our style every season, right? What was it that caused Israel to build, move this stone, call it Ebenezer, to see God deliver them, and then quickly move on? It is the heart of every man, of every woman, of every child. We are born to this. And not all who will hear the gospel will believe the gospel. Which is why Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, Christian, the path to experiencing God's salvation, it has to begin with hearing the word and responding with repentance, confession, and worship. And we have that message We are the ones who've been entrusted with that message. This isn't a guilt trip to go out and tell a hundred people before the sun goes down tonight that they need Jesus and how to find him. This is the reality. We are here to do a work. We who have been given so much grace, how can we keep this good news to ourselves? 
God is faithful to deliver even though his people prove time and time again their unworthiness. So we see in verses 3 through 11 that repentance is the first step toward revival. We want revival. Do we want revival? Then we have to do the things that are lined out in this. We have to seek the Lord with our whole heart. We have to turn away from seeking other things. We have to confess our sins. We have to, we have to seek him on an enduring level. And we can do that with confidence as we see it in verses 12 through 17 that God does hear the cries of repentant sinners. Lord, we pray that you would help us turn our hearts. We pray that you would be so real to us and so compelling in our lives that your word would be a fire that would settle deep within our hearts. For some of us, that means that you are going to convict us of sin, and it's going to be hard, and it's not going to be pleasant. We're going to have to go to people who we've been lying to, and we're going to have to tell them the truth about our struggles and what we've been doing. But God, give us the strength to cry out, knowing that you will grant forgiveness. Knowing that living a pure life is living the best life. Free in our consciences, before God and our fellow man. For some of us, Lord, this means that we're going to be required to start speaking where we are. To take the word and to demonstrate our love for God out of his great love for us by sharing the gospel with those around us. To not keep ourselves uh, from the world in the sense of we have no attachments outside of our little circle of friends, our family. But we have to go and pursue people. The need is great. And for some of us, Lord, it's just a sweet reminder of just how far you brought us. We can think back to the many times where we ignored you and we pushed you off. And we said, no, we're going to go our own way. And we see your faithfulness to bring friends around us. To take your word, a a random flipping of the radio stations to land on a Christian preaching, a, a, a song that recalls to us the promises that you made to us in Scripture. A reminder, uh, seeing the lives of Christians who are just modeling a humble and gracious discipleship. And Lord, that was what broke us. That's what humbled us. And so, Lord, whether you are strengthening faith, whether you are calling out for real faith and repentance, we pray that you would work in a mighty way today. In Jesus' name, amen.